Glad to be here with you this morning for the Tuesday morning men's Bible study. Um, Wherever you are uh, watching from, whenever you're watching, glad you're here. Glad that you're taking time out of what I know is um, a busy schedule for you. Lots of demands for work and family, um, perhaps demands for making repairs from the storms last week. Glad you're taking time to, to pause, to sit, to look to God's word, and to connect with other men as we seek to, to walk faithfully in the lives God has called us to as his sons. Before we begin uh, our, our parable this morning, one brief announcement, um, and that is that we are uh, resuming uh, men's integrity groups. Uh, men's integrity groups are uh, focused on providing scripturally focused groups that connect theological concepts with the day-to-day challenges of the life of a man, um, particularly um, to, to build up community with one another's, um, to increase one's capacity for the honest need to walk in the light, and to deepen personal and private integrity. Um, and that cuts across a lot of issues, but it's particularly dealing with um, issues of sexual sin and sexual purity. And so there's two groups um, There's one that is a closed group that's a 15-week intensive and one that's an open group um, that meets every Saturday morning. So I encourage you to go to pcpc.org slash men slash integrity or use the QR code here um, or in the email that you get from the church. Um, Encourage you to check that out. This is important for us uh, in our lives as men, as husbands and fathers, Um, and so grateful for the way that the church is leaning into addressing some of these issues for us and for people in our community. This morning we are continuing our series on the parables of Jesus, and this morning looking at the Good Samaritan, um, a parable that is incredibly well-known. Many of the parables are familiar to people, particularly in a Christian subculture like Dallas, but the Good Samaritan is a parable that um, almost anyone in the Western world um, has some level of familiarity with. Um, Even the word Samaritan, which is this uh, ethnic word from the first century, uh, this word Samaritan is is used um, in legal code. It's used in nonprofits and hospitals. Um, The language of the Samaritan has has been carried on and embedded in our culture. And so this is a very familiar parable, but this morning I hope that God uses our study of it um, to to help us to see new things in it, um, for the Holy Spirit to reveal to us ways in which um, we are confronted with, with our lack of sacrificial love for those that we encounter who are in need, um, and how Jesus in his sacrificial love for us, uh, has redeemed us and is sanctifying us. So let me pray, and then I'm going to read for us the passage. If you have a Bible uh, or an app, you can turn there as, as we get ready. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning you've given. Thank you for time to, to sit and study your word. Um, it's a privilege that we have access to it, um, passed on faithfully by, by scholars and 
uh, academics and pastors and translators throughout the generations. And so we praise you that we can hold it in our hands, that we can take it into our minds and our hearts. And we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would cause it to be effective to change us, to change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Jesus tells this story. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This parable, again, is a very famous parable, a very familiar parable. This morning, I want to simply um, point out for us three things that Jesus is doing in this parable. Three things that Jesus is doing in this parable. Number one, Jesus exposes our spiritual pride. He exposes our spiritual pride. We see that primarily in this lawyer who comes to Jesus um, and who Jesus is having dialogue with before and after the parable is told. Um, before the parable is told is really the main portion where we see the the lawyer's pride come out. Um, and this is particularly a spiritual pride. This lawyer was not a civil lawyer, but he was a religious lawyer, a religious scholar. A uh, doesn't give us uh, his particular title, but he's one who is trained in the Old Testament, trained in ethics, perhaps. Um, one who would probably instruct others or um, give guidance or argumentation for the implementation of Old Testament ritual and ethical laws. So this lawyer is someone who is steeped in the particulars um, and in the data of Old Testament ethics. And it says that he comes to Jesus um, not to learn from Jesus, though he calls him teacher, and uh, not to have a, uh, a dialogue with Jesus where he's 
really seeking an exchange of ideas and best practices for law-keeping, it says that the lawyer comes to Jesus to test him, to test him, or a better word could be to trick him. Uh, this lawyer uh, believes that he, the, the trained, appointed scholar, has a better understanding and a better grasp of the Old Testament ethics around uh, God's will and the ways of eternal life. He believes he has a better grasp on that than this, this Jesus, this troubadour teacher from a no-good town like Nazareth. On the surface, the lawyer uh, may seem um, to be on solid footing. Um, Jesus does not have titles. Um, his family is not important. Um, he's not been trained in a certain school of rabbis. Uh, so the lawyer comes to test him. And he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, the question, um, Jesus, in his wisdom and in his skill as uh, an engager of hearts, rather than answering the question directly, he turns the question around on the lawyer and says, um, well, how do you see it? How do you read it? Um, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Jesus here maybe even is feeding the pride of this lawyer, feed, feeding his arrogance. Um, uh, Jesus knows uh, the, the deceptiveness and the arrogance of his heart. And Jesus feeds that by saying, well, you lawyer, teach me, teach us. What's your interpretation? And so the lawyer uh, gives what is a very good, correct, right answer. This lawyer has right beliefs in certain ways. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself in other places in the gospels has given this exact answer for what is the greatest commandment. Here the lawyer uh, gives this answer in terms of understanding what is the way of eternal life. And Jesus therefore answers, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, the lawyer isn't satisfied that he simply knows the right answer. The lawyer wants to press in more to these issues, um, uh, displaying maybe his superiority over Jesus or um, displaying even the ways in which he himself personally has kept these great commandments. And it says in verse 29, and this is really a key uh, part of the narrative that uh, maybe the initial audience uh, that was with Jesus might not have observed, but Jesus knows our hearts. Uh, Luke discloses the attitude and the motive of the heart of the lawyer here in verse 29. Luke, inspired by God, knows his heart. And it says in verse 29, he desiring to justify himself to Jesus, said, and who is my neighbor? This lawyer, these two questions the lawyer asks, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, who is my neighbor? These are both tests for Jesus, tricks for Jesus, by which the lawyer is seeking to display his own pride, his own arrogance, his own security, and particularly this, this word here, justify. 
Um, the lawyer is seeking to justify himself before Jesus, meaning he's seeking to be declared right, uh, to be declared as one in this context as keeping these commandments. Um, this lawyer believes that he can justify himself and now standing before the living God, he wants to justify himself. Um, this is absolutely a classic case of spiritual pride. It's like the parable we saw two weeks ago with the Pharisee and the tax collector and the Pharisee going into the temple courts praying, God, thank you that I'm not like these other men or particularly like this tax collector. Um, this is the, the base, obvious, ugly spiritual pride that we see again here in the lawyer. Now, um, it's tempting to, to look at the lawyer's pride and say, oh my goodness, uh, I am so glad that I am not someone who struggles with spiritual pride like that lawyer. I am so glad that I am not arrogant like those other people. I am so glad that I have the gospel figured out. I am so um, thankful that God has given me the gift of humility. Well, if that's the self-talk that's coming out in your heart and mind as you read this parable, guess what? You too, like me, struggle with spiritual pride. All of us struggle with pride of one form or another. And if you are a Christian, it is without a doubt that there is something in your life, even as a Christian, that you are looking to as a marker of being better than a non-Christian or being better than a another Christian, whether it is your leadership role in the church, that's a particular pain point for me in terms of spiritual pride, even standing before you virtually this morning to teach, that can be a source of spiritual pride as if, as if I have something important to say. I don't. I simply need to pass on the word of God. In myself, I, I can bring nothing, but it's a temptation for me. Um, and all of us have those temptations. C.S. Lewis uh, says this about pride in his book, Mere Christianity. If you have time, if you have a copy of that, and all of us should, it's a top 10 classic of the Christian faith, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, he has an incredible chapter on pride um, that will cut you to the heart. Lewis says that pride is, is that thing that we see in other people um, that we are the most guilty of and the most blind to in ourselves. We despise it in others because we really sense that it's true of us. He says this, he says, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A few sentences later, he says, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment, or even common sense. And of course, the, the issue of love is the one that Jesus is going after here in this parable of the Good Samaritan, this uh, sacrificial love that the Samaritan displays. But this lawyer is stuck in the death trap, Lewis calls it, the death trap of spiritual pride. He doesn't know God in a saving way. He knows the commandments. He is right in giving and expressing right beliefs or right truths about God and his word, but he doesn't know God. 
in a saving way. His heart has not been transformed. He thinks he can justify himself. He thinks he has something to say and to give to the living God. None of us, none of us have ever or are now or will ever be at that place where we could justify ourselves. We are wholly dependent on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, of Christ paying the full penalty of our sins, of Jesus justifying us, of Jesus making us right and declaring us righteous before him. We need Jesus as our savior. I pray that's true for you today. If you're not sure all that that means, if you're, if you're not sure that you're a Christian, if, you, if you're sure, not sure that you know God in the way that, that Lewis is describing, I encourage you to reach out to me or to other pastors or a table leader uh, in one of your groups because we cannot go any further in this parable beyond this. We need to know God. We need to know him in humility and in faith and clear every source of pride out of the way. Jesus exposes our spiritual pride. The second thing Jesus does is he expands our relational world. He expands our relational world. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the description in these next several verses, in verses 30, 31, and 32, you look at the description of the actual parable and this scene of a traveler going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a downhill journey of about 17 miles. Um, the description of the, the traveler um, gives us uh, a reason to see that Jesus is expanding our relational world, meaning he is calling us to love people who may be outside of our comfort zone or outside of our circles of influence and friendships and familiarity. Jesus, in describing this traveler, um, says something very important. Listen to the description of the traveler. See if you can identify his ethnicity or his class or his vocation or his religion. Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. What do we know about the traveler? Almost nothing. We know almost nothing about who the traveler was. We don't know if he was wealthy or poor. While he was apparently traveling alone, we don't know if he was married or had parents um, who were alive. Um, we don't know his ethnicity. We don't know if he's from Jerusalem or from Jericho or from other, some other city. We don't know his vocation. Was he a businessman? Um, was he a priest? Many priests actually lived in Jericho and would make that journey regularly, coming back and forth to the temple weekly. Um, particularly, we read about his clothes being stripped off. Clothing today, like in uh, uh, like today, in those days, clothing was a key indicator of a person's identity, um, their class, their culture, their ethnicity, their uh, economic status. But Jesus tells this parable and almost treats this traveler as a blank slate, as if to say it doesn't matter who he is. What matters is that he's in need. 
What matters is that he has been beaten and left half dead. Jesus intentionally does not tell us anything about who this person is because whoever he is, we're called to love him. We in the kingdom of God are called to love anyone and everyone. Now, uh, in this parable, uh, you know, this particular telling of the parable, it's immediately preceded by the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? That question in and of itself from the lawyer um, is a question that is meant uh, to try to, to point out boundaries or loopholes in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer is wanting to define exactly, well, who is my neighbor? Who must I show love to? And if I know who I must show love to, then I know all, uh, all of a sudden who I'm not obligated to show love to. Um, the lawyer is seeking to draw boundaries about, around this commandment. Jesus is seeking to demolish those boundaries, to upend those ways in which we create uh, uh, loopholes in the law of God. Now, all of us would probably say, if we read these commandments to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, um, all of us, if we were asked the question, uh, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? All of us would probably give a, a fairly good, accurate, right, uh, formal answer to that question. If I were to ask you formally, um, is there anyone that we are not obligated to love? All of you would probably say, no, we are obligated to love everyone. And that would be our formal answer. That's what we probably believe. The question and the issue for us this morning is, what's our functional answer? How do we function and live in our lives? Do we really live as if we believe that everyone is entitled to our love? That anyone that we meet, regardless of class, regardless of sin, regardless of our relationship to them, regardless of speaking the same language as them? Are we really convinced that that is, that the obligation to love all people is so true that it actually functions in our life? Or is it only a formal belief? We see that in uh, the, the other two men who come and pass by, uh, uh, the, the priest and the Levite, both of them formally would have said, um, yes, I probably need to love this person. I'm probably obligated to love this person, but they had created some kind of loophole in their hearts of, well, if no one sees me pass by, then I'm okay. Or uh, maybe there's a chance that he is dead. And if I touch him, then that's a vocational risk for a priest or a Levite. If I, if I touch a dead person, uh, because that makes me unclean. Or they could have found the functional loophole of, well, this is inconvenient. If he's dead, I'm obligated to bury him as well. And that's going to co cost time and money and effort. Um, the priest and the Levite create these functional loopholes around the commandment and they pass by. Our functional loopholes might be race or gender, sexual orientation, economics, religion, nationality, political party, 
age, the list goes on and on. If you think you don't have a functional loophole when it comes to this commandment to love all people as yourself, if you think you don't have a functional loophole, think about it in reverse. Ask the question in reverse. Don't ask, um, are there people I don't think I need to love? Ask yourself this question. Are there people that I feel especially obligated to love or that I especially like to love? If you start there, you might begin to see um, a, a, a sliding scale of a sense of obligation to love all people. Now, certainly there are those in our lives that we are especially responsible for. Um, if you, uh, in terms of thinking about family, um, maybe even thinking about your, your immediately geographic proximate neighbors. That's kind of how we think of the word neighbor is the people that live on either side of us or across the street from us or across the hall from us in our apartment. Um, that's how we tend to think of that word neighbor. Um, God's word here is telling us neighbor means far more. It means anyone and everyone we are called to love. Um, and you can think about examples in the scriptures of the challenge of that. You think of Joseph and the challenges of loving his brother, uh, his brothers who had betrayed him. It might feel unfair for him to love them and help him, but he did. Genesis chapter 50. Uh, you think of the story of Jonah. It might feel unsafe to go and to love people and to hold out the message of the gospel to them. Jonah might have felt that it was unsafe or again unfair to go to the citizens of Nineveh. He goes the opposite way. Um, but God works on his heart, convincing him to go and to love those people, declaring to them the good news. Um, there's times also where the command to love just simply seems unrealistic. Jesus says we should love our enemies. How realistic is that? Really, Jesus? But God's word again and again and again models that we are called to love everyone. Our relational world is meant to be expansive and to include anyone and everyone that we encounter. Not asking questions, not raising barriers. Um, one commentator says it this way. He says, uh, barriers or boundaries or loopholes. He's, he uses the word boundaries. He says, boundaries are an important means by which we establish our identities. But an identity growing out of Jesus' sense of being a neighbor obliterates boundaries that close off compassion or that permit racism and attitudes of superiority. Jesus' command and his instruction and his explanation of what it means to be a neighbor seals up every loophole and it decimates every boundary. The third thing that Jesus does in this passage, and the last thing we'll look at, is Jesus exhorts us to sacrificial love. He exhorts our sacrificial love. You see that in verses 33 through 37. And this is seen in how the Samaritan responds to this traveler. Um, unlike the priest and the Levite who, who pass by, the Samaritan stops. Now, it's important to, to know something about his identity as a Samaritan. For this lawyer who was undoubtedly Jewish, this religious scholar, uh, for, for a Jewish person and for, uh, it's assumed here in this context, a Jewish audience hearing this parable, um, for them to see a Samaritan as 
the hero of the story as the one who kept the law, as the one who faithfully loved his neighbor, that would have been offensive to this lawyer and to the other Jews listening in because they viewed Samaritans as heretics and as outsiders, um, people who had built up a, a rival temple in a rival city, still pledging that they loved the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but following a different path, a different uh, tr- kind of a different tradition. Um, you might think of the difference between Catholicism and uh, Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy in the ancient world. It was that kind of major break in division, and there was great ethnic and religious hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so for Jesus to place the Samaritan as the, as the hero of the story, as the keeper of the law, uh, as the one who did good and who is the model, this would have been incredibly offensive. But it was not the Samaritan by virtue of being a Samaritan that made him so good. It was not his identity ethnically that made him uh, faithful. It was how he loved this traveler how he loved him sacrificially. Think of the sacrificial love that the Samaritan displays. Um, It says in verse 34, the Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds. So there's physical care, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He is putting this this beaten half-dead man on his own animal, taking him to get help, nursing his wounds. He is paying the innkeeper not only for a place for this man, but he says in verse 35, he tells the innkeeper, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Um, So apparently this man was planning on returning. He was not just uh, dropping this guy off at the hospital. Uh, That would have been help but he was planning on returning and seeing through this man's care, paying for it, taking time for it. Um, It would be interesting. Jesus doesn't give us uh, uh, more of a description, but it'd be interesting to know, um, did a relationship form between these two people, between the Samaritan and the traveler? Um, Did they uh, tell stories with one another? what did that relationship look like going forwards? Uh, We don't know. What was the conversations like? But we certainly know that the ways in which this Samaritan was loving this traveler were sacrificial. And that is the call of how we are to love our neighbors. Who are we to love? Everyone. And how are we to love them? Sacrificially. Thinking of the resources that God has given you and me, we're to think of How can I use those resources, whether it's a resource of time or money or skill or particular passion that you have um, or the the place in which you live, um, the resources God has equipped you with in your family or in your workplace? What resources has God given to me that I can use not only comfortably but sacrificially giving up something? for the sake of loving those who I encounter who are in need. Um, Yesterday, um, I was uh, driving with two staff members of our church, um, uh, going out uh, out of town for a little bit for a meeting and coming back. 
And the whole time that we were driving, I had been studying this parable for the last several days. And I told them that while we were driving, I was, I was keeping my eyes on the road, but really I was keeping my eyes out for someone on the side of the road in need. Because here was a priest and, and, a, and a Levite uh, and church staff uh, traveling. And man, if we encountered someone on that day um, with this parable stuck in my head, and if we passed them by, oh my goodness, the guilt and the shame that I would feel. And so all day I was looking for someone on the side of the road in need. And sure enough, at the very end of the day, I pulled into my neighborhood. I turned onto my street and I saw an old man laying on the sidewalk. Um, I didn't recognize him as one of my neighbors. It was 15 or 20 houses down the street. But I saw an old man laying on the sidewalk in front of a, a house. And I stopped the car and I opened the door and got out and I said, sir, are you okay? Do you need any help? I was um, kind of excited thinking that the Holy Spirit had brought this parable into my life um, for a reason at that, on that day, at that moment, and that I was, I was going to nail it. I was going to crush it. I was going to fulfill the law and fulfill that parable. And the man turned and looked up and he said, no, I'm just turning off my water. Like so many people in Dallas, there was a water issue in his house last week. And he was just out front at the line, turning off the water. I was a little disappointed, but also grateful that he wasn't, uh, wasn't hurt, wasn't in great need. And I went on home. But we should have that sense of looking and watching. I had that sense because I'd been studying the parable and I had that sense because I was literally traveling along the roads yesterday with, with other church staff and thinking of the parallel with this uh, uh, passage. But every day we should have that sense of expectancy. Every day we should have that sense of watchfulness of who do I encounter that is in need? And how can I use the resources God has given me to help them? Um, that's the, the mind and the worldview and the heartbeat that God is after in this parable that Jesus is commending in this parable. And so Jesus ends with this line, with this sentence to the lawyer. The lawyer acknowledges that it was the Samaritan that showed mercy to the traveler. And Jesus ends with this command to the lawyer and to us. He says, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Notice Jesus does not say, you now believe that you should help all people sacrificially and love all people sacrificially. And that that is a fulfillment, a great fulfillment of the law of God. And that that is the way to inherit eternal life. Jesus doesn't say, go and believe. He says, go and do. There is no getting around the fact that this parable is not primarily calling us to believe something. It is primarily calling us to do something. This parable, one commentator wrote, it is a rebuke against idle Christianity. It is a rebuke against idle Christianity. This parable's climax is go and do. And so all of us, need to now go and do as this Samaritan did. But here's the trick. 
he, he, maybe not a trick. He, here's here's an explanation that's very important. Just like this lawyer could not justify himself by having right beliefs, you and I cannot justify ourselves by having right actions. We cannot go and do and therefore earn God's love or keep God's favor. Going and doing is meant to be an overflow, a display of, a proving of the fact that we are God's children, that we are citizens of a kingdom of God. Um, Jesus' closing uh, statement, uh, his closing question to the lawyer is, who proved to be a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor? And that's the question for us. Are we proving that we are believers? Are we proving that we really are citizens in a new kingdom with new ethics, with a radical lifestyle by which we would love sacrificially all people? Are we proving the reality of our salvation? We cannot earn it. We cannot deserve it. We cannot go and do and therefore feel justified or be justified. That comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. But we can go and do now to prove that we are justified, to prove that we are God's people. Let me pray for us as we close and as we seek to go and do that very thing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Um, I thank you for the way that it is memorable and convicting and how it calls us to action. Father, I confess in my own life, there are so many days in which I turn a blind eye to people who are in need, whether it is obvious physical need of uh, a stalled car or homelessness, whether it is uh, a more subtle need for encouragement um, or love, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to the needs of those around us. And we pray that we would not, um, that we would not move by quickly or comfortably, but that we would lean into the uncomfortable circumstances in which you call us to sacrificial love. I pray that you would give us motive to do that because we have tasted and experienced your sacrificial love for us. And that out of being rescued, out of being safe in you, that we would live a life of faithful risk for your sake, loving others as you have loved us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So good to be with you guys this morning. I look forward to the day we can be face to face together in uh, a room like this. But for now, um, thanks for being here and I hope that you have a great discussion in your groups.